Sentire Media. Hello you. You're listening to A History of Italy. Episode 145, Fleeting Youth, Lorenzo de' Medici's Early Years. Io piansi un tempo, come volle amore, la tardità delle promesse sue. Or piango come vuole il mio errore, che il tempo fugge per non tornare più. Tant'è il nuovo dolor maggior che il primo, quando quello avea pur qualche speranza, questo non ha se non pentirsi in vano. Once I wept as love desired, the delayed promises. Now I weep as my mistakes desire, for time flees never to return. This new pain is greater than the last, for with the first there was hope, now there is only vain regret. This poem is by none other than Lorenzo de' Medici, known as a statesman, but also an accomplished poet, thanks also to his maternal genes with his mother, Lucrezia Tornabuoni, being an accomplished poet herself, who did not publish publicly, but only for friends and family. The poem is about the passage of time, something that Lorenzo felt at a very young age, with the responsibility of running a family bank and the Republic of Florence on his shoulders. What Lorenzo would have loved more than anything was to read and write poetry, discuss philosophy with the intellectuals he surrounded himself with. With that, I mean very literally surrounding himself he would get intellectuals and artists' villas around his own in Fiesole, just outside the city and known as the Balcony of Florence. So another good reason to be friends with Lorenzo de' Medici. If you have seen the beauties of Florence, I do recommend a visit to Fiesole with its Roman and Etruscan archaeological site and exhibition on our old friends, the Lombards. Lorenzo also liked to relax and do physical activity in the country and, of course, party with the ladies. Mind you, he did get to do a lot of this anyway, despite the responsibilities of government. Let's start with the ladies. By 1468, Lorenzo was coming of age at 19. In truth, he had been quite premature all of his life. As a child, he had been made to recite formulas and poems to welcome visitors. He and his brother Giuliano were doted upon by their grandfather, Cosimo, such as when he interrupted a diplomatic mission from Lucca to attend to one of the boys. Although the Medici were not official rulers of Florence, some sources say Lorenzo was raised as a prince, and according to whether the writer is pro or against the Medici, he was either very arrogant or actually quite modest. We have Lorenzo's first letter of recommendation at the age of 11, when he wrote to his father, asking for a job for someone. We have also seen that as a teenager he was used on diplomatic missions by his father, such as when he went to Rome to oversee the agreement for the Medici management of the Alma mine in Tolfa, 
or when he was sent to Naples to meet with King Ferdinand, also known as Ferrante, an acquaintance which would prove to be precious in future. He was not only premature from a political and intellectual point of view, for he was already practicing acrobatics and jousting at the age of 10. Now we see him just shy of 20, a cultured man who knew Latin and Greek. The first was quite obvious, as it was the lingua franca of middle-aged Europe, but the Greek was less so at the time. Indeed, it was the Medici family who gave a very strong contribution to the rediscovery of the original Greek sources, which for centuries had been read only in translation, in particular for a certain little philosopher called Plato. Every year on the 7th of November, Lorenzo and his friends would celebrate Plato's birthday. As we said at the end of the last episode, Mother Lucrezia felt it was time to find him a wife. To do so, she broke with family tradition and looked outside of the confines of Florence, hoping to increase the family status on an international scene. She headed to Rome and managed to land him a bride from one of the most important families there, Clarice Orsini. Despite what you may be thinking about Roman high society, in truth, the meeting between future mother-in-law Lucrezia and daughter-in-law Clarice would have been a bit like a city mouse, Lucrezia, meeting a shy country mouse, Clarice. The Florentine women at the time would have been more refined, perhaps more advanced and worldly even. The whole thing must have been quite intimidating for Clarice. Anyway, after a long and drawn-out negotiation, the deal was sealed. Lorenzo did not travel down to see his bride. He didn't even come for the actual wedding, which was done by proxy through a family member, Filippo de' Medici. What was he doing that kept him so busy? Well, first of all, one of his and his brother Giuliano's favourite things, organising a giant tournament. Then, the wedding would have really put a damper on his love for another woman, Lucrezia Donati. Some of you with very keen memories may remember that the Donati were an important Florentine family of black Guelphs, partly responsible for the exile of one Dante Alighieri, despite his own wife Gemma also being a Donati. The Donati we are on about was a Donati on her father's side and a Bardi on her mother's side, and both families had fallen upon hard times thanks to English kings, and it was not simple for Lucrezia's father to get her a good match, since he really couldn't afford to send her off with a decent dowry. In the end, it was Lorenzo de' Medici himself who put in the money for the dowry, but interestingly, before meeting Lucrezia. When they finally did meet, as we say here in Italian, it was un colpo di fulmine, a lightning bolt, love at first sight, and there would always be a place in his heart for the woman. Despite the fact that when they met, she was already married and he would be just a few years later. The good thing was that her husband, Nicolò Ardinghelli, was an exile and not even in Florence, and when his exile was lifted, he was still quite often away on business. Many sources claim that the love story between Lucrezia and Lorenzo remained a platonic one, a chivalrous amour de l'ogne of Arthurian inspiration. I don't know, I have no proof, but I suspect if you're the most powerful man in the country, you're going to find a way.
I only imagine what poor Clarice had to put up with. First of all, this other woman in her husband's life would have been more of an intellectual and cultural companion for him. Then, Clarice was asked to be the godmother of Lucrezia's child. In the Medici house, a portrait of Lucrezia hung for all of the life of Lorenzo, and it was only after his death that one of Lucrezia's son came to ask for it. Then, of course, there was the delay in Lorenzo coming to meet his wife, all because, and here we get back on track, he was organizing a huge tournament, something he and his brother loved to do, dressed up in ancient Greek theme, kind of like a toga party maybe, and the decorations, armor and clothes all being designed by the greatest artists of the day. I'll bet you can never guess who won the tournament. That's right, Lorenzo de' Medici. If this seems just a little bit suspicious to you, there are some sources that reckon it was made convenient for the other participants in the joust not to win. Then, can you guess who the queen of the games was? The woman who had the task of giving the victor his prize? Did you say Lorenzo's wife, Clarice Orsini? Of course not. It was Lucrezia Donati. In the end, poor Clarice did get to Florence and she even got a nice wedding party. It was a huge, sumptuous and expensive affair with food and drink and banqueting not only for the esteemed guests but also for many of the people of Florence. It went on not for hours but for days, ending in the house of Lorenzo's uncle, Carlo, the illegitimate son of Cosimo. Even a huge rainstorm didn't manage to dampen the spirit of the festivities, perhaps confirming the Italian saying, Sposa bagnata, sposa fortunata. Wet bride, lucky bride. Then again, that's probably just a saying to comfort really annoyed brides. So, next time someone asks you where you would like to go in history if you had a time machine, you might want to think twice about going to see Napoleon at Waterloo and risk getting shot or going to see Caesar in the Forum on the Ides of March and risk getting stabbed, and instead head to Lorenzo the Magnificent's multi-day spectacular wedding celebrations. These celebrations and the tournaments were part of the reason the man earned the moniker Magnificent. The great tournament that Lorenzo had won was not just all for a bit of fun, not just to celebrate his betrothal, it was also a clear message for the Republic of Florence. A passage of power had come about. The shadow government of Florence had passed from Piero de' Medici to his son. On the 2nd of December, 1469, Piero de' Medici died after a reign of five years. The supporters of the Medici faction met and sent a delegation to Lorenzo, asking him to take the unofficial reins of power, an extra step in the pathway of the family to legitimacy. Yet for now, the new head of the family had no role or title except for his seat in the Council of the 100. Speaking of which, he made 40 of the Council of 100 permanent members, obviously making sure that these 40 were solidly in his pocket. He also sneakily reduced the guilds from 14 to 5, something which would have sparked revolution a century before. Now, I've often heard historians when talking about the Medici or other important Italian families compare them to the Mafia. I bet this would not happen if we weren't talking about Italy, 
because if using connections and wealth to gain and maintain power is considered something akin to the Mafia, then almost all of the world is run by the Mafia. In Lorenzo's own words, this was the end of his brief period of youth. It was time to get to work. It seems that from that moment on, Lorenzo tuned down the partying and womanizing side of his activities. With the handover, the usual opposition made an attempt at wrestling power from the Medici. The old ally and the nemesis of the family, Dio Tisalvi Neroni, and other Florentine exiles promoted a rebellion in the controlled city of Prato. But rather than let things get out of hand, Lorenzo quickly sent troops there to support city authorities in subduing the rebellion. Lorenzo showed he could act fast, but he was not hasty. So, when in 1470, Pope Paul II was trying to get his hands on the city of Rimini, Lorenzo played the long game and stayed on the fence as long as he could. In the end, it was the opposition for all the major players, Milan, Venice, Naples and Ferrara, which made the Pope desist. In 1471, the Duke of Milan, Galeazzo Maria, came to Florence to try and impress what he considered to be a minor partner in the alliance with an impressive retinue. The tables were soon turned on him, and he was highly impressed by what he saw in Florence. From then on, it would be the Duke of Milan who would send to Florence, asking for artists to embellish Milan. It was again in 1471 that Lorenzo went on another diplomatic mission and business trip to Rome. Pope Paul II had died, something which had put a bit of a damper on his ambition to subjugate Rimini. As we know, nothing makes it hard to subjugate strategic seaside property like your own death. In his place, Francesco della Rovere was elected and took the name Sixtus IV. The two made good impressions on each other and started off well. Little did they know that they had just met their most relentless and determined enemy. Grazie mille. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks in particular to my super Patreon supporters, starting with the second half of the Margarita Hack and Galileo Galilei level, and that is Julia G, Justin E, Mary T H, Old John in Milwaukee, Orlando D, Kevin, Mark P, Marxist Leninist Sicilian, Mella, Michus Porchus, Mike M, Neville, Niels, Paradise, Patrizia Kappa, Philip B, Rachel, Roberta D, Rod L, Rodney N, Rudy F, Scott L, Sean M, Shelby Stephen, and Tap Dance Down Under. Thanks, of course, to the tippy top Maria Montessori and Dante Alighieri level Paolo, Lisa K, Andrew M, Peter W, Kevin O, David L, Rinat, David C, Oak. J.W., Sen, and David A. If you feel the desire to get in touch, and please do, you can write an email, hello at ahistoryofitaly.com. You can follow us on social media. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, all A History of Italy. And if you go to our website under the support page, you can become a Patreon supporter and get access to ad-free episodes and extra content. 
Once again, thank you very much for listening, and until next time, arrivederci. Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.